0: in an upper room of an unoccupied dwelling in that part of San Francisco, known as North Beach, lay the body of a man under a sheet. The hour was nine in the evening. The room was dimly lit by a single candle. Although the weather was warm, the two windows, contrary to the custom which gives the dead plenty of air, were closed and the blinds drawn down. The furniture of the room consisted of but three pieces an armchair, a small reading stand supporting the candle, and a long kitchen table supporting the body of a man. All these, as also the corpse, would seem to have been recently brought in, for an observer had there been one, would have seen that all were free from dust, whereas everything else in the room was pretty thickly coated with it, and there were cobwebs in the angles of the walls. Under the sheet, the outlines of the body could be traced, even the features, these having that unnaturally sharp definition which seems to belong to faces of the dead, but is really characteristics of those only that have been wasted by disease. From the silence of the room, one would rightly have inferred that it was not in the front of the house facing a street. It really faced nothing but a high breast of rock, the rear of the building being set into a hill. As the neighboring church clock was striking nine with an indolence which seemed to imply such an indifference to the flight of time that one could hardly help wondering why it took the trouble to strike at all, the single door of the room was opened and a man entered, advancing toward the body. As he did so, the door closed, apparently of its own volition. There was a grating as a key turned with difficulty and the snap of the lock bolt as it shot into its socket. A sound of retiring footsteps in the passage outside ensued, and the man was, to all appearance, a prisoner. Advancing to the table, he stood a moment, looking down at the body. Then, with a slight shrug of his shoulders, walked over to one of the windows and hoisted the blind. The darkness outside was absolute panes were covered with dust, but by wiping this away, he could see that the window was fortified with strong iron bars crossing it within a few inches of the glass and embedded in the masonry on each side. He examined the other window, it was the same. He manifested no great curiosity in the matter, did not even so much as raise the sash if he was a prisoner, he was apparently a tractable one. Having completed his examination of the room, he seated himself in the armchair, took a book from his pocket, drew the stand with its candle alongside, and began to read. The man was young, not more than thirty, dark in complexion, smooth-shaven with brown hair. His face was thin and high-nosed, with a broad forehead and a firmness of the chin and jaw which is said by those having it to denote resolution. The eyes were grey and steadfast, not moving except with definitive purpose. They were now, for the greater part of the time, fixed upon his book, but he occasionally withdrew them and turned to the body on the table, not apparently from any dismal fascination which, in his circumstances, it might be supposed to exercise upon even a courageous person, nor with a conscious rebellion against the opposite influence which might dominate a timid one. He looked at it as if in his reading he had come upon something recalling him to a sense of his surroundings. Clearly, this watcher by the dead was discharging his trust with intelligence and composure as became him. After reading for perhaps a half hour, he seemed to come to the end of a chapter and quietly laid away the book. He then rose, and taking the reading stand from the floor, carried it to a corner of the room near one of the windows, lifted the candle from it, and returned to the empty fireplace before which he had been sitting. A moment later, he walked over to the body on the table, lifted the sheet, and turned it back from the head, exposing a mass of dark hair and a thin face cloth, beneath which the features showed with even sharper definition than before. Shading his eyes by interposing his free hand between them and the candle, he stood looking at his motionless companion with a serious and trinkle regard. Satisfied with his inspection, he pulled the sheet over the face again and returning to his chair, took some matches off the candlestick, put them in the side pocket of his coat and sat down. He then lifted the candle from its socket and looked at it critically, as if calculating how long it would last. It was barely two inches long, In another hour, he'd be in darkness. He replaced it in the candlestick and blew it out. In a physician's office in Kearney Street, three men sat about a table, drinking punch and smoking. It was late in the evening, almost midnight, indeed, and there had been no lack of punch. The eldest of the three, Dr. Halberson, was the host. It was in his rooms they sat. He was about thirty years of age. The others were even younger. All were physicians. The superstitious awe with which the living regard the dead, said Dr. Halberson, is hereditary and incurable. One need no more be ashamed of it than of the fact that he inherits, for example, an incapacity for mathematics or a tendency to lie. The others laughed. Ought a man be ashamed to be a liar? asked the youngest of the three, who was, in fact, a medical student and not yet graduated. My dear Harper, I said nothing about that. The tendency to lie is one thing. Lying is another. But do you think, said the third man, that this superstitious feeling, the fear of the dead, reasonless as we know it to be, is universal? I'm myself not conscious of it. Oh, but it is in your system for all that replied Helberson. It needs only the right conditions, what Shakespeare calls the Confederate season, to manifest itself in some very disagreeable way that will open your eyes. Physicians and soldiers are, of course, more nearly free from it than others. <laughs> Physicians and soldiers. Why don't you add hangman and headsman? Let us have it all the assassin classes. No, my dear man, Kirk. The juries will not let the public executioners acquire sufficient familiarity with death to be altogether unmoved by it. Young Harper, who had been helping himself to a fresh cigar at the sideboard, resumed his seat. What would you consider conditions under which any man or woman born would become insupportably conscious of a share of our common weakness in this regard? He asked rather verbosively. Well, I should say, And if a man were locked up all night with a corpse, alone, in a dark room, of a vacant house with no bed covers to pull over his head, and lived through it without going altogether mad, he might justly boast himself not of woman-born, nor yet like Macduff, a product of C-section. "'I thought you never would finish piling up conditions,' said Harper." But I know a man who's neither a physician nor a soldier who will accept them all for any stake you like to name. Who is he? His name's is Jarrett. Stranger, California. Comes from my town in New York. Haven't had any money to back him, but he'll be back himself with dead loads of it. And how do you know that? He'd rather bet than eat. As for fear, I'd say he thinks it's some cutaneous disorder or possibly a particular kind of religious heresy. What does he look like? Halbertson was evidently becoming interested. Like Macner here, my beast twin brother. I accept the challenge, said Halbertson promptly. Awfully obliged to you for the compliment, I'm sure, drawled Manker, who was growing sleepy. Can't I get into this? Not against me, Halbertson said. I don't want your money. All right, said Manker, I'll be the corpse. The others laughed. The outcome of this crazy conversation we've seen. In extinguishing his meager allowance of candle, Mr. Jarrett's object was to preserve it against some unforeseen need. He may have thought too, or half thought, that the darkness would be no worse at one time than another, and if the situation became insupportable, it would be better to have a means of relief or even release. At any rate, it was wise to have a little reserve of light, even if only to enable him to look at his watch. No sooner had he blown out the candle and set it on the floor at his side than he settled himself comfortably in the armchair, leaned back and closed his eyes, hoping... And expecting to sleep. In this, he was disappointed. He'd never in his life felt less sleepy, and in a few minutes he gave up the attempt. But what could he do? He could not go groping around in the absolute darkness at the risk of bruising himself, at the risk too of blundering against the table and rudely disturbing the dead. We all recognize their right to lie at rest, with immunity from all that is harsh and violent. Jurette almost succeeded in making himself believe that considerations of that kind restrained him from risking the collision and fixed him to the chair. While thinking of this matter, he fancied that he heard a faint sound in the direction of the table. A kind of sound he could hardly have explained. He didn't turn his head. Why should he? in the darkness. But he listened. Why should he not? In listening, he grew giddy and grasped at the arms of a chair for support. There was a strange ringing in his ears. His head seemed bursting, his chest was oppressed by the constriction of his clothing. He wondered why it was so, and whether these were symptoms of fear. Suddenly, with a long and strong expiration, his chest appeared to collapse, and with the great gasp with which he refilled his exhausted lungs, the vertigo left him, and he knew that so intently had he listened that he had held his breath almost to suffocation. The revelation was vexatious. He arose, pushed away the chair with his foot, and strode to the center of the room. But one does not stride far in darkness. He began to grope, and finding the wall, followed it to an angle, turned, followed it past the two windows, and there, in another corner, came into violent contact with the reading stand, overturning it. It made a clatter which started him. He was annoyed. "'How the devil could I have forgotten where that was?' he muttered, and groped his way along the third wall to the fireplace. "'I must put things to rights,' said Mr. Jarrett, feeling the floor for the candle. Having recovered that, He lighted it, and instantly turned his eyes to the table, where, naturally, nothing had undergone any change. The reading stand lay unobserved upon the floor. He'd forgotten to put it to rights. He looked all about the room, dispersing the deeper shadows by movements of the candle in his hand, and finally crossing over to the door, tried it by turning and pulling the knob with all his strength. It did not yield, and this seemed to afford him a certain satisfaction. Indeed, he secured it more firmly by a bolt, which he had not before observed. Returning to his chair, he looked at his watch. It was half past nine. With a start of surprise, he held the watch at his ear. It had not stopped. The candle was now visibly shorter. He again extinguished it, placing it on the floor at his side as before. Mr. Jurette was not at his ease. He was distinctly dissatisfied with his surroundings, and with himself for being so. What have I to fear? He thought. This is ridiculous and disgraceful, I will not be so great a fool. The courage does not come of saying I will be courageous, nor of recognizing its appropriateness to the occasion. The more Jared condemned himself, the more reason he gave himself for condemnation. The greater the number of variations which he played upon the simple theme of the harmlessness of the dead, the more horrible grew the discord of his emotions. "'What?' he cried aloud in anguish of the spirit. "'What shall I, who have not a shade of superstition in my nature, "'I who have no belief in immortality, "'I who know, and never more clearly than now, "'that the afterlife is the dream of a desire, "'shall I lose at once my bet, my honor?' and my self-respect, perhaps my reason, because certain savage ancestors dwelling in caves and burrows conceived the monstrous notion that the dead walk by night. That, distinctly, unmistakably, Mr. Jarrett heard behind him a light, soft, sound of footfalls, deliberate, regular, and successively nearer. Just before daybreak the next morning, Dr. Halberston and his young friend Harper were driving slowly through the streets of North Beach in Doctor's Coupe. Have you still the confidence of youth and the courage or solidity of your friend? said the elder man. Do you believe that I've lost this wager? Huh. I know you have, replied the other with enfeebling emphasis. Well, upon my soul, I hope so. It was spoken earnestly almost solemnly. There was a silence for a few moments. Harper, the doctor resumed, looking very serious in the shifting half-lights that entered the carriage as they passed the street lamps. I don't feel altogether comfortable about this business, If your friend had not irritated me by the contemptuous manner in which I treated my doubt of his endurance, a purely physical quality, and by the cool inclivity of his suggestion that the corpse be that of a physician, I should not have gone on with it. If anything should happen, we're ruined, as I fear we deserve to be. What can happen? Even if the matter should be taking a serious turn, of which I'm not at all afraid, Mantra is only to resurrect himself and explain matters. With a genuine subject from the dissecting room or one of your late patients, it might be different. Dr. Manker then had been as good as his promise. He was the corpse. Dr. Halberson was silent for a long time, as the carriage at a snail's pace crept along the same street it had traveled two or three times already. Presently he spoke. Well, let us hope that Mancher, if he has had to rise from the dead, has been discreet about it. A mistake in that might make matters worse instead of better. Yes, said Harper. Gerard would have killed him. But Doctor, looking at his watch as the carriage passed a gas lamp, it's nearly four o'clock at last. A moment later, the two had quitted the vehicle and were walking briskly toward the long, unoccupied house belonging to the doctor, in which they had immured Mr. Durrett in accordance with the terms of the mad wager. As they neared it, they met a man running. Can you tell me, he cried, suddenly checking his speed, where I can find a physician? What's the matter? Halberson asked, noncommittal. Go and see for yourself, said the man resuming his running. They hastened on. Arriving at the house, they saw several persons entering in haste and excitement. In some of the dwellings nearby and across the way, the chamber windows were thrown up, showing a protrusion of heads. All heads were asking questions, none heeding the questions of the others. A few of the windows with closed blinds were illuminated. The inmates of those rooms were dressing to come down. Exactly opposite the door of the house which they saw to street lamp threw a yellow, insufficient light upon the scene, seeming to stay that it could disclose a good deal more if it had wished. Harper, who was now deathly pale, paused at the door and laid a hand upon a companion's arm. It's all up with us, doctor, he said, in extreme agitation which contrasted strangely with his free and easy words. The game's gone against us all. Let's not go in there. I'm for lying low. I'm a physician, doctor Halveston said calmly. There may be need of one. They mounted the doorsteps and were about to enter. The door was open. The street lamp opposite lighted the passage into which it opened. It was full of people. Some had ascended the stairs at the farther end and denied admittance above, waited for a better fortune. All were talking, none listening. Suddenly on the upper landing there was a great commotion. A man had sprung out of a door and was breaking away from those endeavoring to detain him. Down through the mass of affrighted idlers he came, pushing them aside, flatting them against the wall on one side or compelling them to cling by the rail on the other, clutching them by the throat, striking them savagely, thrusting them back down the stairs and walking over the fallen. His clothing was in disorder, he was without a hat, his eyes, wild and restless, had in them something more terrifying than his apparently superhuman strength. His face, smooth-shaven, was bloodless, his hair snow-white. As the crowd at the foot of the stairs, having more freedom, fell away to let him pass, Harper sprang forward. Jurette! Jurette! He cried. Dr. Halverson seized Harper by the collar and dragged him back. The man looked into their faces without seeming to see them, and sprang through the door, down the steps into the street and away. A stout policeman, who had inferior success in conquering his way down the stairway, followed a moment later and started in pursuit. All the heads in the windows, those of women and children now, screaming in guidance. The stairway being now partly cleared, most of the crowd having rushed down to the street to observe the flight and pursuit, Dr. Halberson mounted to the landing, followed by Harper. At a door in the upper passage, an officer denied them admittance. We are physicians, said the doctor, and they passed in. The room was full of men, dimly seen, crowded about a table. The newcomers edged their way forward and looked over the shoulders of those in the front rank. On the table, the lower limbs covered with a sheet, lay the body of a man, brilliantly illuminated by the beam of a bull's-eye lantern held by a policeman standing at the feet. The others, excepting those near the head, the officer himself, all were in darkness. The face of the body showed yellow, a repulsive, horrible. The eyes were partly open and upturned, the jaw fallen, traces of froth defiled the lips, the chin, the cheeks, a tall man... Evidently a physician, bent over the body with his hand thrust under the shirt front. He withdrew it and placed two fingers in the open mouth. This man has been about two hours dead, said he. It is the case for the coroner. He drew a card from his pocket and handed it to the officer and made his way toward the door. Clear the room! Out! All! All! said the officer sharply, and the body disappeared as if it had been snatched away as he shifted the lantern and flashed its beam of light there and here against the faces of the crowd. The effect was amazing. The men, blinded, confused, almost terrified, made a tumultuous rush for the door, pushing, crowding, and tumbling over one another as they fled like the hosts of the night before the shafts of Apollo. Upon the struggling, trampling mass, the officer poured his light without pity, without secession. Caught in the current, Helsburn and Harper were swept out of the room and cascaded down the stairs into the street. "'Good God, Doctor, did I not tell you that Jourette would kill him?' said Harper as soon as they were clear of the crowd. "'I believe you did,' replied the other without apparent emotion." They walked in silence, block after block, against the graying east, the dwellings of our hill tribe showed in silhouette. The familiar milk wagon was already astir in the streets. The baker's man would soon come upon the scene. The newspaper carrier was abroad in the land. "'It strikes me, youngster,' said Halberson, "'that you and I have been having too much of the morning air lately. "'It is unwholesome.' We need to change. What do you say another tour in Europe? When? I'm not particular. I should suppose that four o'clock this afternoon would be early enough. I'll meet you at the boat, said Harper. Seven years afterward, these two men sat upon a bench in Madison Square, New York, in familiar conversation. Another man who'd been observing them from some time, himself unobserved, approached and courteously lifting his hat from locks as white as snow said, I beg your pardon, gentlemen, but when you've killed a man by coming to life, it is best to change clothes with him and at the first opportunity make a break for liberty. Alberson and Harper exchanged significant glances. They were apparently amused. The former then looked the stranger kindly in the eye and replied That has always been my plan. I entirely agree with you that it is avid He stopped suddenly and grew deathly pale. He stared at the man open-mouthed. He trembled visibly. Ah, said the stranger I see that you're indisposed, doctor If you cannot treat yourself Dr. Hopper can do something for you, I'm sure Who the devil are you? said Harper bluntly. The stranger came nearer and bending toward them said in a whisper, I call myself Jared sometimes, but I don't mind telling you for old friendship that I'm Dr. William Manker. The revelation brought men to their feet. Manker, they cried out in a breath and Halberson added, Is it true? By God! Yes, said the stranger smiling vaguely. That's true enough, no doubt. He hesitated and seemed to be trying to recall something that began humming a popular air. He had apparently forgotten their presence. Look here, Manker, said the elder of the two. Tell us just what occurred that night. To Jarette, you know. Oh yes, about Jarette," said the other. It's odd I should have neglected to tell you. I tell it so often. You see, I knew by overhearing him talking to himself that he was pretty badly frightened, so I couldn't resist the temptation to come to life and have a bit of fun out of him. I couldn't really. I was alright, though. Certainly I did not think he would take it so seriously. I did not, truly. And afterward, well, it was a tough job changing places with him. And then, damn you, you didn't let me out. Nothing could exceed the ferocity in which these last words were delivered. Both men stepped back in alarm. We? Why? Halberson stammered, losing his self possession utterly. We had nothing to do with it. Didn't I say you were Doctors Halbern and Sharper? inquired the lunatic, laughing. My name is Halberson, yes, and this gentleman is Mr. Harper, replied the former, reassured. But we are not physicians now. We are. Well, hang it, old man, we're gamblers. And that was the truth. A very good profession. Very good indeed. And by the way, I hope Sharper here paid over Gerette's money like an honest stakeholder. A very good and honorable profession, he repeated, thoughtfully moving carelessly away. But I stick to the old one. I'm high as Supreme Medical Officer of the Bloomingdale Asylum, and it's my duty to cure the superintendent. Hey everyone, hope you enjoyed tonight's story. I thought it would be fun to sneak in a little public domain classic horror story in here for this month. This one was really uh, fun to read, really interesting idea. Um, also, I just really love the way Ambrose... I think that's how you say his name. Ambrose? Ambrose Bierce? I love the way he writes. It's easy to read, it's not too... Fancy, I guess? It's not really a word I'm looking for, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Like, Poe has a very specific way of writing that's very wordy and very... I don't know. There's definitely a word for it that's just slipping my mind, but... I really enjoyed this story. Uh, Let me know what you thought about it down in the comments section below. And also, while you're down there, answer me this question. Would you spend the night in any location that was said to be haunted, said to be one of the most haunted locations in the world. I was going to ask if you'd spend the night with a dead body, but that's a little, that's a little much. So if someone were to come to you and say, Hey, this place is supposedly the most haunted place in the state, in the world, in the country, whatever, would you spend a night there? Would you do it for free? If not for free, then what kind of money would they have to offer up for you to do it? I'd be, I think it'll be interesting to see what people think. Me personally, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts and spirits and uh, demons and anything like that. Nothing evil, right? But I still wouldn't do it. Because I don't believe in it, sure. But I'm definitely not taking the chance if it is real. You know what I mean? Let me know what you think in the comment section below. Thanks again, everyone, for watching. I hope you're having a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are, as November comes to an end here in just a few weeks. I'm very, very excited to see what December brings us, and I hope you're excited as well. Anyways, take care, everyone, and as always, stay safe out there.